When I was a teenager, my mother and my stepfather decided that they were going to take up square dancing. So they took the classes, they bought the outfits, and every week they were somewhere square dancing. Well, one time they actually convinced me to go with them. Now, I'm a teenager, okay, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll go, I'll go. But you have to promise me I don't have to do anything. I can just sit over in the corner and I can just, just watch. And they said, that's fine. But to ensure that I had an escape plan, I drove my own car. And being a teenager, I made sure that I parked it a long way away from the event just so my friends wouldn't ride by and connect my car with square dancing. Now, there's nothing wrong with square dancing. Nothing, nothing at all. And I, and I don't mean to, to disparage square dancing. Uh, it's just that when you're a teenager... Uh, growing up, that's not really what you want to do. But anyway, I went, and I'm there. And I had heard my parents talk about somebody named the caller. And I, I didn't quite know what that were, was. And they'd come home after they'd been square dancing, and they would always sort of critique the caller. Some were better than others. Well, actually, when I went to, to, to see them, I, I was actually kind of fascinated with the caller. The caller is kind of the, the master of ceremonies. He's the entertainer. He's the director. And in addition to being entertaining, he calls out dance steps as the music's playing. And, and people respond to these dance steps. And the assumption is that they respond in the right way because they know the steps. And most of the time, it, it works that way. But occasionally, he would call out a step that only half the people would know. Well, you can imagine people would either do the wrong thing or they'd stop or they'd go and chaos ensued. And he'd have to stop and he'd have to take time to explain exactly what he was talking about. Well, when it comes to our, our Christian life, there are certain steps that we are instructed to take, certain things that we do in, a, in our Christian life that, that are important. And today in James chapter 5, we're going to be looking at, at what James has to say and what James calls us to do in certain situations. What he says, essentially, in this passage that we're going to be looking at, is he says that in all the situations of life, whatever situation uh, you face, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, he says, pray. Pray. Well, what's so difficult about prayer? Well, I don't know about you, but I struggle with prayer. I really do. That's not what you expected to hear today, is it? You know, you're the, you're the pastor. You're not supposed to struggle with prayer. Prayer is supposed to be an easy thing for you. Well, I, I struggle with prayer not because I don't pray. I do. And, and, and I struggle with prayer not because I don't believe in the power of prayer. I do believe in the power of prayer. But where I struggle with prayer is maintaining a proper understanding of prayer and not letting my prayers maybe get out of that proper understanding. And it's also a challenge as a pastor to get people to understand the proper, not just how to pray, but understand what prayer is all about. And that's a challenge. And sometimes I struggle in my own life and sometimes I struggle uh, as a pastor with talking about prayer with others just for that, that very reason. Now, if... I ask you what prayer was, you'd say, well, I know what prayer is. But I, I guarantee if I went around the room, 
If I went around the room and said, what's your definition of prayer? What's your definition of prayer? What's your definition of prayer? We, we might get a whole bunch of different definitions. You know, I might go around the room and, and for some, prayer might be an opportunity that we have to come before God and, and to tell him everything that's on our heart and all our, our wants and our needs and, and all of those kinds of things. Or for some, prayer might just be a, a conversation with God. Uh, for some, they may just see prayer as it's just what I do as I go about my daily life, that I really don't have a time to pray. I just, everything in my, about my day is, is talking to God. Well, there's some validity in all of those, but, but I really think there's an incompleteness as well in those. I like what Ralph Martin has said. He said, prayer at its root is simply paying attention to God. Simply paying attention to God. For example... If you think prayer is a conversation with God, I bet you anything, you've got the talking part down. But I bet you anything, the listening part is the challenge. So if we say prayer is a conversation with God, and, and, and that's perfectly a valid uh, way to look at it, but we have to be careful that it's not just a one-way conversation. So you see, when we talk about prayer in, those, in that sense, sometimes it, it, it's incomplete because it only goes one way. But imagine if we thought about prayer as actually paying attention to God. Instead of saying, I, I'm going to go spend some time reading my Bible and, and, and praying and, and, and talking to God. What if instead of saying that, you said, look, I'm going to go and I'm going to study my Bible and then I'm going to spend some time paying attention to God. How would that change the way that you pray if, if your point in prayer was to go and to pay attention uh, to God? And I think it's important, and the key point for us to understand today is that prayer is not so much God paying attention to us as it is our paying attention to God. Here's what James says in James chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you in trouble? He says, let them pray. What kind of trouble? It can be any kind of trouble. It can be health issues, and we're going to talk about illness here in a little bit. It could be grief, disappointment, persecution. It could be some, time, some type of loss. It could be some type of financial loss. Pretty much anything. Anything that causes you difficulty could be defined as trouble. Now, what do you pray for when you're going through a time of trouble? Well, you can certainly pray that the trouble will be taken away. You can pray that God will come in and intervene and he will remove the trouble. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I pray for that in times of trouble. There's nothing wrong with praying for God to remove the trouble. But you have to be careful that you're paying attention to God. And here's why. Because we need to pay attention to God and the fact that he might have a greater purpose for our trouble and that the greater purpose might not be served in the removal of that trouble. You know, sometimes, although we might not understand it at the time, God may not remove trouble from our lives for a purpose. Because that trouble might be for our ultimate good, or that trouble might be a means to bring glory to God. You see, God's name is not just glorified when God answers the prayers the way that we want him to answer them. God's just not glorified when we come and say, God, I really need you to do this, and he does it. That's not the only time God is glorified. God is glorified 
when he brings glory to himself. And God can use the times of trouble in our lives to bring glory. His name can also be glorified because he uses trouble in our lives for his greater purpose. So paying attention to God is paying attention to the fact that God might have a greater plan for your life, a greater plan for your situation than what you think. Now, we're good at telling God how he needs to work things out. God, I need you to do this, and, and here's how I, I need you to do it. But in our prayers, we need to be careful that we are praying in our prayers that, that our will would be conformed to his not that his will would be conformed to ours. And we need the wisdom to not waste things that come into our lives. If we're going through a time of trouble and God wants to use it, we need to pray for wisdom that God will show us how we can use this situation in our life for his glory. But we can also pray for strength. There's nothing wrong with praying for strength. In fact, I think you should pray for strength. Because while God might not remove the trouble from your life, I can guarantee you God will give you strength in your life to bear up under whatever the trouble is. God is not going to have trouble in your life that he's going to use for his purpose and just leave you to hang. He's not going to do that. If God has a greater purpose, if God has a greater purpose for what's going on in your life, then he is most certainly going to give you the strength to stand up under it. I really believe that. And if we put all of our eggs, so to speak, in the relief basket, in other words, if, we put all, if God is real, then he's going to answer my prayers like I want him to. He's going to take it away. If we put all of our eggs in that basket, we are going to find that we're going to live a life that's going to really actually be disappointing and frustrating. Because what we have done is we've limited God's power. Because God's power is great and God's power extends beyond just what we see. God's purpose extends beyond what we see. And God not only will give us strength to bear up under it, but God will use whatever is in our lives if we allow him for his purpose. And while you're at it, pray for the, <laughs> pray for the other person. You know, sometimes people are causing you trouble. It may be your boss at work. And so what happens is you pray that God will deliver you from this trouble. But pray for your boss too. If you're having difficulty in a relationship, don't just pray for your side of it. Pray for the other side as well. We don't need to be selfish in our prayers in time of trouble. It's an opportunity for us to pray for someone else. It's also an opportunity for us to be a witness to someone and how we respond in a time of trouble, especially if it's in, a, uh, in some kind of confrontation. James also says, is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. If anyone is happy, let them sing songs of praise. Singing is a form of prayer. If you don't believe me, look at the book of Psalms. It's an ancient Hebrew hymnal. They're prayers. Singing is a form of prayer. And you may say, well, I, I, don't, I don't sing very well. Well, you might not. I mean, because sometimes what comes out maybe doesn't qualify you to sing in the worship band or in the, in the choir or anything. But what God looks at is God looks at the heart. Our singing comes, first of all, from the heart. 
In fact, in, in the book of Revelation, you know, we, we read that there's a lot of singing going on in heaven, so we might as well go ahead and, and start now uh, and get used to it. But the main point is, in our prayers, we, we can't just come to God in the bad times in our lives and pray. Uh, we need to pray in the good times as well, and we need to celebrate those good times, and we need to sing praises to God, not just verbally or, where we can, or audibly, but we also need to have a prayerful attitude and an attitude of gratefulness and have a singing heart, so to speak, that expresses our gratitude to God. Uh, James goes on in verse 14. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. The word used for sick here can mean sick, as in physically sick, or it can mean weak. And it's used in different ways in the New Testament. What does James mean here? Well, since his brother Jesus always used this particular word to mean physical illness, we'll, we'll take it uh, that it means sickness. But it can also mean spiritual sickness. And here's the first clue to this passage for me, is don't get hung up on the details. It says, is anyone sick? Is anyone sick? Let him call, all right? Don't sit there and go, well, wait a minute. The pastor said it was physical sickness. So if I'm going through some kind of spiritual sickness, I, I can't call. Don't get hung up on details. That's not what it's all about. James said, is anyone sick? If you're going through a sickness in your life, here's what he says to do. He said, to go and call the elders of the church. Now, there's a lot of healing in the Bible. You read scripture, New Testament. Jesus healed a lot of people. This is the only place in the Bible where it actually gives you an outline of what to do. If you are physically ill, it gives you an outline of what to do. Now, we need to be careful because this outline is not a magic formula. Because God doesn't want us to trust in a formula. God wants us to trust in him. Because the point here is it's not the who. The who I'm sorry, the who, rather, is more important than the how. The how is not so much important. The who is more important than the how. The first thing that James does is he tells the sick person to call for the elders of the church. Who are the elders of the church? They're the mature believers. They are the, the church leaders. And it says to ask them for prayer. It doesn't say, send the guy on TV $100 and let him send you his little prayer cloth. No. It doesn't say anything about money. <laughs> it says, call the elders of the church. Whose responsibility is it to call the elders of the church? According to this, it's the sick person's responsibility. The sick person is to call the elders of the church. Why? Well, for one reason, the elders of the church might not know the person's sick. So you need to call. We have a lot of people sometimes will be in the hospital and, and I'll, I'll see them and I'll say, man, we missed you at church. Well, I've been in the hospital for 10 days. Well, did you let anybody know? Well, no. Well, 
I don't have the gift of whatever you want to call it, <laughs> that knowledge. Let us know. That's the first thing. If you're sick, people might not know that you're sick. Let the elders know. That's the first reason for calling. The second reason is it's an act of faith. It, to initiate the call is to ask for help. It's an act of faith. It shows a measure of humility. It shows that, that you have given up the understanding that, that you uh, are, are indestructible, that you can do anything, that you can take care of it on your own. It's an act of faith that you are sick and you have called the elders of the church to come and pray for you. Now, there are a lot of times in Scripture where people were healed. But generally in Scripture, if you read where people are healed, they initiated the contact. They came to the place where they needed to be healed. Now, it says the leaders are to pray over them. Uh, you could also say it means to lay on hands. In other words, there's, as, you, as the, the leaders come, they, they put hands on There's something about a physical touch, I really think. There's something about a physical touch. There's nothing magical in the physical touch. But, you know, if, if you're suffering, if you're going through a difficult time, you know what it means for someone even to just, just to put their hand on you. So physical touch can be powerful. But what it says is that the elders are to, when they pray, they are to voice clearly that the power for healing doesn't <laughs> come from this touch, but rather it resides in the name of Jesus. And it says, anoint them with oil. Happened a lot in the early church. In fact, oil uh, in Scripture had medicinal uh, uses. But it also can be a symbol of the Spirit of God on the person. Or it can also symbolize that this person has been set apart especially uh, for healing. But it's symbolic. There's nothing magical about the oil. And then he talks about sin. Well, sin may or may not be the cause of an illness. I mean, some, there's some cause and effect sometimes. If you do certain things, then, then there's certain... Uh, outcomes from those things but but the point is that in the in the process of all of this this physical sickness what James wants to point out is the idea is don't neglect the spiritual that that it's a good opportunity for people to also not to just worry about their physical illness but that they have sin to confess it's a great opportunity to confess these sins and, and to get them out in the open and to share and there's a lot that comes I think from being open and getting things out of the open and sharing your sins with one another. And I will add, church leaders, that that's a reason for you, if you're going to expect people to do that, that confidentiality needs to be an extremely important part uh, of, of what you do. But it's the idea that uh, confession is not demanded, but it's an opportunity to get things out. Now, it says the prayer Prayer has to be sincere. The prayer has to be from the heart. The prayer has to be in trust and, and with no doubt. But it says here that the responsibility for that faith is where? It's in the elders. It's in the people praying. Now, certainly the person who's sick has expressed faith when he called for the elders. But when it talks about the prayer here, it's talking about the faith of the person praying. If someone asks you, as a mature Christian, to go pray for them, you want to really focus on that prayer. 
You don't want to go say, yeah, I'll go pray for you. But the whole time, you're just kind of mumbling some prayer. And you're thinking about, well, I got this appointment at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Or I'm going to do this. Or, oh, I got to remember to stop by the store. You, you can't do that. It's, it's, it's a total part of what you're doing. You've got to focus and you've got to pray sincerely. You've got to pray believing. You can't just go and, and kind of mumble some prayer. That's not why they called you. They called you because you're a mature believer. And they believe in the power of prayer. And you have to believe and pray from the heart as well. Now, if you're sick... You call the elders, they come, they anoint you with oil, they put hands on you, and they pray. And they pray a sincere, honest, from the heart, believing prayer. Does that guarantee that the person will be healed? Does it guarantee it? Does it guarantee they'll get well? Not in the sense that we think. But you say, wait a minute. It says that the prayer will make the sick person well. James doesn't say the prayer might. It says it will. So isn't God guaranteeing, if I follow this formula, if I follow this outline, and if I have powerful people pray over me and anoint me with oil, doesn't that mean I am guaranteed that my sickness will go away, that I will get up from whatever hospital bed I am in, and I'll walk out of there totally healed, physically? Doesn't that guarantee it? No. How do I know that? People die. People die. Christians die. You think about in the history of Christianity. There have been people miraculously healed of diseases. You know people. You may be someone who has been healed. But death is a reality. It's a reality that comes. But here's the thing. We have to emphasize here that the prayer offered is a prayer offered in faith. Not only faith that believes that God can physically heal, but also the faith that expresses absolute confidence in God's will, in His plan, and in our part in it. That's what that prayer of faith is. It's been said that a true prayer of faith will acknowledge God's sovereignty in his answer to that prayer. It is not always God's will to heal those who are sick. Prayer for healing must be qualified with a recognition that God's will is supreme. You can go back to what I said earlier uh, about trouble. And you can insert sickness that we need to pay attention to God and the fact that he might have a greater purpose for our sickness and that the greater purpose might not be served in the removal of sickness. And sometimes people will say, well, you know, if I just had enough faith, you know, if grandma just had enough faith, if I just had enough faith in my prayer, you know, or we see somebody and, and that we pray for them. Well, you know, if they just had enough faith, they would be healed. And you hear people on TV say all the time, if you'll just have enough faith, 
And probably the reason you're not being healed is you're not having enough faith. I don't think God has a scale. I don't think we go to God in prayer and God has a scale and he looks down and he says, well, you know, they prayed that, that old Joe would be healed. But you know what? Those people that prayed on a scale from one to five, they only had a 2.4 on that faith scale. I require at least a 3.0. And you know that sick person, man, they, only, they were only down about 1.2. I require 3.0. God doesn't operate that way. God doesn't operate that way at all. Letha Anderson writes that while faith is important, faith does not heal. God heals. And God has a record for doing great things in response to minimal mustard seed size faith. You see, God in his sovereignty sees things differently than we do. And there are times when he decides to heal someone. As I said earlier, maybe you've experienced it. Maybe you've been a part of that. Now, we don't know why. But sometimes God might be more glorified in how we handle sickness. He might be more glorified in the witness that we provide others in the way that we deal with our sickness. And we all know people who have gone through a, a, a terrible illness in their life, but their faith just shines through and it's a witness to so many people. See, God can use that. God might have a, another purpose. God might have another purpose so that you know his peace for really for the first time maybe in your life. And in the midst of your illness, God brings to you a peace that you've never had before. Or maybe God might heal you in the ultimate sense. He might take you home to be with him. Here's something that we need to get over as Christians. We need to get over the idea that death is somehow a defeat in our prayer life. We need to get over the fact that somehow if we pray for someone and they die, that that's a defeat. For the believer, death is not a defeat. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and defeated death for us. Those of us who believe in him have the promise of eternal life. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Paul said, hey... Look, you know, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Death is not defeat for those of us who believe, and we need to quit looking at it that way. Somehow that our prayers weren't effective if somebody doesn't get well that was a believer. The ultimate healing in any situation comes when we are taken home to be with God to spend an eternity with him. That's not defeat. And so when we pray, we need to stop looking at it as if it's a defeat. Death for the believer is not a tragedy. Listen to that again. Death for the believer is not a tragedy. It's not. It's a victory. And we need to realize that God... And his will, and his plan, and everything about it is sovereign in these situations. But as I said earlier, he doesn't leave us to ourselves. 
He gives us the strength. He gives us the peace. He gives us whatever we need. We just need to trust. James closes by saying, uh, Elijah, and I chuckle when I read this because he, he talks about Elijah. He said, you know, Elijah's just like the rest of us, <laughs> just regular person. I kind of disagree with that. I, Elijah was a, a, great, a great prophet. Elijah did some incredible things. But, but his purpose or his meaning is that Elijah was a human being. And he says that Elijah prayed. And when he prayed, he prayed that it wouldn't rain. And for three and a half years, it didn't rain. And then, then Elijah prayed again, and, and it did rain. Now, he's not making some point that Elijah uh, had some kind of magic prayers or that Elijah was, um, somehow had the right formula. What, what he's emphasizing is Elijah uh, had a relationship with God, a close relationship. Elijah paid attention to God. Uh, and the idea that, that his prayers came out of, of that relationship with God and that, that paying attention to what, what God was, was up to and what God wanted to, to accomplish. And Elijah saw himself as a part of that. I like what Bruce Getz has said, that prayer is not a discipline we must master. It is a relationship we develop. And this relationship with the God of the universe, will be our greatest joy, our greatest source of strength in times of difficulty, and the place we turn when we feel like life is caving in around us. James says to us, if you're in trouble, pray. But pay attention to God. Pay attention to God, though, when you pray. And see how he wants to use that trouble and pray that he'll give you the wisdom to be a part of it. Things are going great. If you're happy, sing. Let your heart sing songs of praise and, and thanks to God. If you're sick, take a step of faith and call the mature Christians that you know, the leaders of your church, to come and to pray for you, to lay hands on you, to anoint you with oil, and to pray all the time trusting that, that, that God has a plan in whatever you're going through in life. In times of trouble, he has a plan. In times of good times, he has a plan. In times of sickness, he has a plan. And he won't leave you alone in that plan. And please, 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 stop looking at death as a defeat. Because it's not for those of us who believe. I see it as the ultimate healing. It's an eternal healing. Only for those who believe in him. Let's pray.